Hey, welcome to church, everyone. You all good? Uh, in a minute or two, we're going to be going live to connect uh, with our other two locations, soon to be three. Uh, so in a minute, you can, you can join me in welcoming them. But first, let's pray uh, and let's ask God to speak to us. Let me just add my welcome to Paul's. If you're visiting with us, I've already met uh, one friend, Amanda from California. Good to have you here today. Amanda, you, didn't, you weren't in a Western movie, were you? No, I don't think so. No, sorry, Paul. I met, there was a guy called John over here, and uh, Clint was over there as well. So, but apart from that, yeah. uh, let's, let's pray and let's ask God to meet with us. Father, thank you so much that we're in your very presence. I'm asking, Father, that as we turn in these moments to the Bible, I pray that you would speak to us right into our souls. God, thank you that you're here. And also, God, as we broadcasts today to our north and Leith locations. God, thank you that you are mightily present in Leith and in north. And God, thank you that you're building a community of believers here at Destiny Church, alongside the other churches in this great city. And we believe you're doing something so spectacular. Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit. Change lives. I pray anyone here today, God, who doesn't yet know you, you'd really make yourself real to them in a very special way. Help me to speak Help us to hear in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. So join me in welcoming the guys from uh, North and Leith. Welcome, guys. Good to connect together. Great to be one church, three locations. Um, today, we're going to continue in our series in John's Gospel. We've entitled our series, uh, Jesus Is. And the whole purpose of the series is to reveal who Jesus is. It's, it's a big, long look at this person, Jesus Christ. And, just, and as we look at Jesus, our lives are transformed as a result. Um, so that's the journey. In fact, let's just, 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 in your, just where you're sitting, just take a moment and just ask, in particular today, I don't, maybe t- today you're here and you don't know God yet, this can be a prayer you pray. Or maybe you've known God for many years, this can be a prayer you pray. Just close your eyes for a minute and just where you're sitting, just pray an honest prayer. Okay, God, I want to know you better today. Just pray that prayer. Would you reveal yourself to me? Pray that prayer. Even if you're not sure he's there, ask him to reveal himself. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers. And I pray all across this city today you'd reveal yourself in a really special way. Amy or Ewan, she's a well-known apologetics speaker. She travels around universities communicating about who Jesus is. She did a survey in the University of Nottingham with a whole group of, a whole team from Ravi Zacharias Trust, and they were on campus, and they were asking people the question about who Jesus is. They interviewed about 500 people, and of the 500 people they interviewed about who Jesus is, only two people called themselves, of the 500 interview only two people would call themselves believers in God. Quite staggering of 500 students in Nottingham University. Um, It's interesting, as part of the survey, they they came across a group of Chinese students who had been in the UK for eight months. And they asked these Chinese students, who do you think Jesus Christ is? And they, they looked so shocked and surprised and as the team, they thought, well, why are they so shocked? And as the team asked them more, why are you so shocked? They said, in the last eight months we've been in, in the University of Nottingham, 
we have never heard the name Jesus Christ used other than in the context of a swear word. So they thought when they were being asked about Jesus Christ, they thought something, it was something to do with swearing. So they, they were so shocked that this was someone other than someone that we can swear about. Jesus Christ, for me, is the most remarkable one ever. And I want to do everything I can to let him reveal himself uh, to us today and may it touch and change your life. Fidel Castro, who died this week, he said that Jesus is the greatest revolutionary of all time. Today, he knows he's a lot more than just a great revolutionary. Let's look at who Jesus is. You know, if you were to go in the street and ask 101 different people, who is Jesus, you would get 101 different answers. But if I want to know who, who is Drew, I don't ask you all who Drew is. I go to Drew and say, who are you, Drew? Presumably, Drew's not confused about who he is, and he would tell me exactly who he is. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to let Jesus reveal himself to us. That's the plan. So we're going to go into John's gospel. We're now in chapter 8, and this is Jesus speaking, and he's going to reveal himself in such a remarkable and strong way. This will shake your world. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my words will never see death. What a start. Whoever obeys my words will never see death. That's a promise. At this they exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. <laughs> Crazy crowd. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And yet you say, whoever obeys my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, as did, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his words. Your father Abraham, Jesus says to the Jewish audience, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you. Now, every time Jesus says this, and he says this kind of phrase numerous times in the Gospels, very truly, I tell you. Every time he preempts a statement with that, you know he's going to say something that you're going to not believe, right? He says, you're not going to believe this, so I'm telling you, very truly I tell you, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Incredible. They didn't get a rope to hang him, uh, they didn't get a sword to stab him through. The Bible says they got stones to stone him. Because to a Jew, in the book of Leviticus chapter 24, it tells them that if someone blasphemes and claims the kind of thing that Jesus just claims, there is only one penalty for such a person. You stone them to death. So they picked up stones to stone him. They, and do you know what? Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't intervene and say, Well, guys, you misunderstood. I meant... I was. Yes, I am deluded. Okay, he didn't say that. He, he just went with it. And he kind of did this ninja thing. He sneaked out the way. It's really cool. On numerous occasions in the Gospels, they tried to kill him, and they didn't because it wasn't his time. He was so cool. 
He was just, the time will come, but not yet. Jesus is amazing. He, he didn't say, guys, you've misunderstood me. He, he, he figured, you've understood exactly what I said. And he actually knew that that's a fairly appropriate response. It happens again in two chapters later in John 10. Uh, J- Jesus is again dialoguing with a group of Jews. John 10, 32 to 33. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for a good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God's. Another awkward dialogue between Jesus and the crowds. And again, they're planning to stone him. And again, didn't get him. Jesus, at that point, didn't correct their misunderstanding. He just let it hang. He didn't say, okay, that's the second time you've misunderstood me, guys. No, he just left it. In fact, at his trial... It says in Matthew 26, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And we know that began the few hours which resulted in his crucifixion on Golgotha. And even in the face of crucifixion, he didn't step in and say, no, no, it's not blasphemy. You've misunderstood me. He didn't do that. He just let it hang because he understood that if they understood what he had just said and the claims he was making, they would either conclude he is God's or they would conclude he is blaspheming. There is no middle grounds and Jesus knew it. What was their issue? Their issue was when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he was claiming to be none other Then the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the universe, the self-sufficient, all-powerful, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God. That phrase, I am, echoed back to way back in Exodus chapter 3. And this is is how it's revealed to us in Exodus 3. This is God appearing to Moses in that famous moment where Moses has this experience with the burning bush and God appears to Moses And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to see the the people delivered from slavery. And I want you to lead them out of slavery towards the promised lands. And at that point, Moses asked God, God, you know, I'm going to do that. But the people are going to ask me, who is it sent you? So I need to know your name, God. (laughs) And so he asked God, what's your name? And this is what God says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What will I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I don't know if that helped Moses or not, but either way, it was an answer. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am. And that same, exact same phraseology. You know, there's a, that's written in Hebrew originally, the Old Testament it was translated into the Greek language. That was the common use that was in, in Jesus' day. And that phraseology is in Greek, ego imai. That couplet, I am. No one ever referred to themselves as ego imai. They, they referred to themselves as imai. When Paul says, I am what I am, by the grace of God, I am what I am, it was imai. He never used ego imai. Ego imai was a direct quote from Exodus chapter 3 when God says, I am. 
That's how powerful what Jesus was saying was. It was an incredible disclosure of Jesus to the world. What did I am mean to a Jewish person? Well, that name, I am that I am, tell them that I am has sent you. That name, I am, was the most sacred name to a Jew. They wouldn't even dare pronounce it for fear of blasphemy. They wouldn't even dare write it down for fear that they would get it wrong. For pious Jews, only one person every year was allowed to use that name, I am. And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he went into the very presence of of God himself in the innermost parts of the temple. He would only then have that ability to declare God as I am. It was such a sacred name. And it was such a powerful name. And it's also powerful for us. Thousands of years later, this name, I am, is the wonderful description of God of himself. You see, what does I am mean? It means that he just is. He is the self-existent one. He just is. He isn't dependent on anyone for his existence. In fact, everything, life, everything in life, us, we all depend on him for our existence. He is. He is the source of all life. He is the one, he is the uncaused cause. He is the one that causes everything, but he himself had no cause. He's the one who, he answers the question, where does God come from? The answer is, I am. He just always has been. He, 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 he is the one, he's the only thing ever that you can't ask that question about. Where does he come from? Because by very definition, God just is. When Jesus says, I am, He was referring to himself as the, I am the ultimate fact of the universe. I am the source of all life. I am the sustainer of all life. I am the self-existent one. I am the uncaused cause of everything that you've ever seen. And that's who Jesus Christ revealed himself to be. Now you can either say, amen, or you can pick up stones and stone him. There isn't any middle ground, really, because that claim is incredible. You see, There wasn't many people in that Jewish crowd saying, that was interesting. (laughs) Great teacher. I like that. Ooh, I am. There wasn't anyone in the crowd. Imagine you went to a lecture in Edinburgh, right? And you turn up at this lecture, you know, Edinburgh University at Harriet Watt, and the lecturer stands up and, and, and I don't know what their subject is, but either way, in the middle of the subject, they say, yeah, by the way, I created you. Uh, I'm eternal. And I hold your entire destiny in my hands. You wouldn't go away thinking, wow, that was a powerful lecture, that one. Very vivid. You know, love how at, le- at least someone who believes in something. I love that. <laughs> you think, the guy's nuts. That's what you'd think. You couldn't conclude the guy was a sane person. You would have to conclude the guy's nuts. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he's kind of summed this up very well. C.S. Lewis said this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God's. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He gives us three options. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, Or else he would be the devil of hell. He would be evil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or something worse. 
But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about this being some great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is saying, either crown me or kill me. Make me your Lord and bow before me and give me first place in your life. Or reject me forever and do everything you can to oppose everything I say. There isn't any middle grounds. If you, have, if you try to find a middle ground, you lack intellectual integrity. Because he doesn't even give us that option. There's no middle grounds. He's either God or he's a lunatic or a madman or an evil person. By the way, that phrase, the son of God, it isn't he is a son of God. I mean, we could say that of us. Or you could say that in the Bible, it says of the angels. But when he says the son of God, he's, that, that is a divine claim, by the way. We believe God is one. And yet he's always existed as a plurality. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Not three gods, one God in three persons. Jesus is fully God, not half God or a third God. He is fully God, fully man. And he reveals himself as the Son of God, God in the flesh. And that's his claim. So Jesus directly claims to be, I am. And actually that phrase, ego imai, isn't the first time it's appeared. He makes that direct claim five times and he makes that claim metaphorically seven times in the gospel and once in the book of Revelation. We've read some of them already. In the gospels, he says in John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. And in Revelation 22, he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus reveals him. And, and, the, and the thing is, if he is, is indeed God, it stands to reason that he is the resurrection and life because he is the source of life. If he is indeed God, it stands to reason that he's the bread of life because he is the only one who can ultimately satisfy human longings. If he's God, then he is the light of the world because he shines like the light in the darkness of this dark world that rejected God and he is the light that everyone is drawn to. He is the good shepherd. Just like in Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is claiming to be none other than God, your shepherds. Jesus is God. That's our belief. That is our utter conviction. He wasn't just a guru, a nice man, a prophet, a good teacher. In fact, if you believe, and Muslims do and many other people do, if you believe he's a prophet, then you have to, by default, believe he's more than a prophet. I believe he's a prophet. But prophets don't lie. Prophets tell truth. And therefore, if you believe what he says, you have to believe Sure, he's a prophet, but he's so much more than a prophet. He's God in the flesh because he claimed to be more. So the dilemma is, and C.S. Lewis has given us it right in front of our faces, he's either mad, evil, or God. So let's just investigate the claims. Could he be mad? You see, far from being obsessed with himself, as many psychotics are, Jesus was preoccupied by the will of God and the welfare of others. That is not the trait of a madman. Bono in U2, from U2, said this about Jesus. So he is either, in my view, the son of God or he was nuts. I find it hard to accept that the whole, that 
that whole millions of millions of lives, half of the earth for 2,000 years have been touched and have felt their lives touched and spied by some nutter. I just don't believe that. A psychiatrist, J.T. Fisher, said this, if you were to take the sum total of authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental health, and if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out all the excess verbiage, and if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have there an unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. But for nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimism, mental health, and contentment. Here, this psychiatrist claims that not only Jesus not only was Jesus not nuts, but he is the authoritative wisdom on how to help you with mental health issues. One professor in the University of California says that when he meets his patients, he often reads them portions from Jesus' teaching, and that's all the counseling they need. Not only was Jesus not nuts, he gives us wisdom to help with mental health issues. So was he evil? That's the next question. Was he, was he mad or was he evil? Well, I guess this would be, I guess what they say is, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If someone's evil, you kind of, it just doesn't happen that evil people bear good fruit. Evil people bear evil fruit. It's like the tree is known by its fruit. Proof is in the pudding. So the question about Jesus is, is he evil? And you look at Jesus' teaching, he said things like, love your enemies, do to others as you would have done to yourself. In fact, Jesus' teaching, specifically on the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching has become the bedrock for the UK legal system. I don't think that's the fruit of an evil person. Furthermore, his teaching has inspired thousands of people and many of the greats down through history. St. Nicholas, the, you know, the true man, St. Nicholas, on which Santa is based. St. Nicholas, in the fourth century, lived in Turkey. He was an orphan, but he inherited a huge amount of money. And because of the teachings of Jesus, he became philanthropic, and he started giving away vast amounts of money secretly to help people through their troubles. St. Nicholas was completely inspired by the teachings of Jesus. His teaching inspired Florence Nightingale, uh, the Italian, who, who from her conviction about Jesus' teaching birthed today's the modern nursing profession in the UK and globally. His teaching inspired the Swiss businessman Henry Dunant in 1860 to form what we know as the Red Cross. His teaching inspired William and Catherine Booth to found the Salvation Army. It was Jesus' teaching that inspired Gandhi with his approach to non-violent protest. It was Jesus Christ's teaching and convictions that inspired people like Martin Luther King Jr. to take a stand for human rights and civil rights in America at a time when racism was rife. It was the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's not the fruit of an evil tree. The proof is in the pudding. I don't think that's the fruit of an evil man. If it was, it would be the first evil person who ever produced something good on planet Earth. And yet Jesus Christ has produced nothing but goods certainly for those who hold to his teaching. His character supports his claims. 
It's not just that he made such claims about being divine. His very character endorses those claims. You see, the character of Jesus is a complete paradox. We find it hard because in one sense, his claims sound incredibly proud, and yet he was the humblest of people. He was the humblest. He spoke like a megalomaniac, and yet he is the most balanced and modest of human beings. He was fundamentally self-centered. I, 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 I am, I am, I am, and yet his life was absolutely unself-centered, and he ultimately gave himself sacrificially for the world. He made himself the central figure on judgment day, saying that he would be the one to judge the world, and yet he gets on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. He's, in, he's a paradox. His character is incredible. He told his disciples to love their enemies, and he himself, as he was dying on the cross, prayed for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. You see, there have been many self-centered religious leaders down through the centuries, many, but they all behaved like it. There have been many people who have been humble down through the centuries, but none of them made the claims he made. He's a paradox. His closest friends made comments about his character. His closest friends who spent three years with him, living with him, traveling with him, eating with him, fellowshipping with him, they understood him. They would have seen everything, warts and all, if there was any. They saw everything, and this is what two of his closest friends said. John declared in John chapter 1 that he is full of grace and truth. And in 1 John 3, 5, he declares, in him is no sin. And he just spent three years with him, seeing him under intense pressure. And he was able to say with a clear conscience, in him is no sin. And then there's Peter, the apostle, who himself was very flawed, but he comments about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin. There's nothing in him. that There's, not, there's no dent in his character. There's no blemish. He committed no sin. Peter was able to say it. Even Pilate, who was the Roman official standing over Jesus in that trial, he declared over Jesus in that trial, recorded in John 19, he said, I find no basis of charge against him. Jesus was squeaky clean. There was literally no basis of charge against the character of Jesus. There was nothing that could have been in Jesus that, that you could have hung anything on. Nothing. And even, those, even Judas, who was the traitor to Jesus, he betrayed him. This is what Judas said of him in Matthew 27. He says, I have betrayed an innocent man. There was a man called a, a Japanese feudal lord called Wakase no Kami. And Wakase no Kami had military authority. And one day off the coast of Japan... Uh, a European ship had anchored, and the Japanese were very suspicious about this boat, and they asked Wakase no Kami and his men to stand guard on the shore to keep an eye on the activities of this European ship. So they, as they were on the shore watching and, and, and watching out for any, any suspicious activity, up onto the shore washed a, a waterlogged version of the Bible. It was a Dutch translation of the New Testament. Wakazi Nukome got one of his men to get it for him, and he was fascinated by this book, although he couldn't understand it. He was so drawn to this book that he 
went out of his way and sourced a Chinese translation of the New Testament. He got hold of the Chinese translation of the New Testament and started reading it through. Anyway, 11 years later, Wakase no Komi arrived on the door of Wernbach, who was the first missionary, Protestant missionary in Japan. And he arrived on the doorstep with 50 of his men in full regalia. And he requested that Wernbach would baptize him and his men. And he went on to explain that for the last 11 years, he has read through the translation of the New Testament, and it has completely transformed his life. And he decided that he and his men would follow Jesus and get baptized. And this is what he says about Jesus. He says this, Wakazi no Komi, describing Jesus that he saw in the Bible, said this, I cannot tell you my feelings when for the first time I read the account of the character and the work of Jesus. I have never seen, heard, or imagined such a person. I was filled with admiration, overwhelmed with emotion, and taken captive by the record of his nature and life. And he got baptized. Even those who reject his claims endorse his character. I don't know any historian, any sane historian, who brings question over the character of Jesus Christ. So his character endorses his claims. I don't think he was mad. I don't think that for a moment. I don't think he was evil. I think his fruit endorses his perfect character and his qualification to make such claims. He claimed to be God. And his character upholds the claim. But also there were many indirect claims he made about divinity. Here's some of them. He forgave sins. You see, Jesus constantly forgiving the sins of people. You see, you know how this goes. You think, well, how can, how can you forgive someone else's sins? So if, okay, it's Stevie and Drew here. If Stevie punches Drew in the mouth, imagine I came up and said to Stevie, I forgive you, Stevie. Drew would be like, you forgive him? Yeah. What, you forgive him? Because yeah, if I walked up and forgave Stevie for hitting Drew in the mouth, I, I mean, how could I forgive Stevie? And yet Jesus was doing this all the time. Jesus was constantly pronouncing to people, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are... The woman caught in adultery. It, wasn't, it seemed like her, her sin wasn't even against Jesus, unless Jesus was God. And Jesus would say, neither do I condemn you, go sin no more. Jesus was constantly showing forgiveness, something that only God can do. His, his, another, another thing, his indirect claim was his throwaway comments. So, for example, in Matthew 23, verse 34, Jesus said... I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. All those prophets, I sent them. In the Old Testament, yeah, I sent them all. The ones that came in the New Testament, yeah, I sent all them. He's the sender of prophets, something only God can claim. He claimed to be the judge of the world. Listen to what it says in Matthew 25. And listen, you're going to read this, but one day you're going to see this. We're going to be here in this verse. This verse is about us. We will be in this verse. Listen, it says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. You know, you're going to see that. We're all going to see that. He will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from the other, like a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus is claiming that at the end of history, he would return. He will be on his glorious throne with his, his, his angels. And he will stand and he will judge the entire world. Every human being who's ever or ever will live, 
Jesus Christ will be our judge. Your eternal destiny is in his hands. And it might not even be you believe in him yet. And yet, that's what he says. He received worship. That's an indirect claim to being divine. You see, in the, in the Bible, there were a number of occasions where people had angelic experiences and they, and they felt compelled to worship the angel because of the significance of these beings that were, they were in front of. And yet the angels would rebuke them for doing such things. For example, in Revelation 19 and in 22, John the apostle was so blown away by the sight of this angel, he bowed down before the angel and the angel says, no, no, don't worship me, worship God only. And this happened right through the Bible. And yet when it comes to people worshiping Jesus, there was no rebuke. There was no correction. They didn't misunderstand. Just like when the people picked up stones to stone, there was no rebuke. You understand exactly what I'm saying. And when people bowed down to worship, they understood exactly what he was saying. Either way, it's both an appropriate response. One's in great error. One's understanding the truth. But either way, they're understanding what he's claiming and they're responding accordingly. You see, the Magi at Jesus' birth, when Jesus was just a child, it says in Matthew 2 verse 11, that they saw the child and his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. They worshipped the child. It says in John 9, the blind man after being healed, he came to Jesus and it says this, the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. After walking on water, it says in Matthew 14, then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Then after the resurrection of Jesus, the two Marys went to the tomb and there was the stone rolled aside and then Jesus appears to them and it says in Matthew 28, he appeared alive to them. It says they ran to him, grasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Thomas, who had been doubting, when he saw Jesus alive, he declares out of adoration and worship in John 20, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't make any corrections. They understood it exactly. He is God. His resurrection from the dead is the ultimate endorsement of his claim to be God. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you could ignore everything else he said. Because he said, I will die, and on the third day, I will rise. And if he didn't do that, then how can you trust anything else he said? But if he did do that, we've got to pay attention to everything he said. You see, Henry Morris put it this way, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. And you know what? When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we only have a couple of options, really. Either the disciples stole the body and pretended he was alive just to kind of keep things going. But you ask yourself, really, would they have done that? They were emotionally devastated. Do you think they had the wherewithal to take that stand in the face of Rome, and the face of the Jews, knowing that the Jews were capable of crucifying someone? I don't think they had that courage. But here's the deal. If they'd made that lie up and then gone on for the rest of their lives to live for that lie and eventually die for that lie, I mean, seriously, most people don't die for the truth, let alone die for a lie. Do you think they would have held to that lie to the very end? Do you not think one of them, because all of the disciples apart from John died as martyrs, do you not think one of them on the night before their execution would have said, okay, it was a hoax, we made it up. Do you not think one of them would have cracked just to save their own skin? Of course they would, because they're humans. 
but they all died as martyrs because they had seen something. They were totally transformed by seeing Jesus rise from the dead. Totally transformed. The other option is, well, what if the, the Jewish authorities, they stole the body of Jesus away? Come on, seriously? I don't think that would be the case. Because if you think about it, the Jewish authorities were doing everything they could to eradicate Christianity. They wanted to shut the Christians up. They didn't want that idea that Jesus was alive to be propagated. It was causing them too much trouble. If they had the body of Jesus that they had stolen away, they would have quickly shut down the Christian movement by simply bringing out the corpse and saying, here's your savior, he's dead. And instantly the Christian movement would have come to nothing, but there was no corpse. Oh, they wished there was, but there was no corpse. I, only, I believe fully and 100% in the, Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My mom, only a few days before she died, she saw Jesus alive. It was on the Thursday night. She was sitting beside the fire. She was in great pain, unable to move. She, we left her down there with a blanket over her while we went upstairs to sleep. And that night, she had a vision of Jesus. And you know what? She was so full of joy. The next morning when I saw her, the pain had left. She was full of joy. She was full of peace. And she just became more and more distant from us and more and more present with him. And that's how she died. She was alive till the Sunday. And honestly, the idea of dying with joy is a strange idea. I've never, I haven't seen many die. But I've never seen someone die with so much joy. Honestly, full of joy. No one but the resurrection and the life, the one who is actually alive, who has conquered Satan, sin, and death, only Jesus Christ can give you that kind of assurance in the face of death. Jesus has conquered death. He's God. Furthermore, his influence in history completely endorses his claim to be God. Only someone who was God's could have the influence and impact that Jesus Christ has had consistently for the last 2,000 years. You see, here's what three respected historians have said about Jesus and his influence around the world. First of all, H.G. Wells. He said, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, this penniless creature from Galilee is irresistibly the center of all human history. The historian Kenneth Scott Latourette said this, Never has Jesus had so wide and so profound an effect on humanity as in the past three or four generations. Through him, millions of individuals are being transformed. Measured by his influence, Jesus is the central figure in human history. And it's, it's remarkable. Kenneth Stott Latourette makes the point that it's not just historically. It's currently he's having more influence than ever before. How could someone who lived 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, be making even more of an influence, impact than he was 2,000 years ago? How is that possible unless he is God, risen from the dead, poured out his Holy Spirit, actively working among his people, transforming people's lives? We planted the church in Gombe, northern Nigeria, and I remember when that church got off the ground, I got a WhatsApp message from Amen, who started the church, and I had a picture of this guy, and he said, this is our first Muslim convert to Jesus. And as he told me more of the story, here's the story. This guy, Ida, had 
six dreams, six nights in a row, had six dreams, and in the dreams, he had this person appear to him. And the person was glorious. The person was incredible. And on the sixth night, the person revealed that his name was Jesus. And he woke up that on the sixth night knowing that this man Jesus was the savior of the world and knowing that he needed to follow him and knowing that he also knew, I need to go and speak to the pastor of that church I've seen called Destiny Church. And he went and sought out Ammon, who, who he then told about his experience of Jesus, and Ammon led him to faith. He had to relocate him from his house, otherwise his, his, the community would kill him because of the conversion, and they had to relocate him to a neighboring town. Just now, he's just finishing a theology degree, and he's coming out as a pastor. But that's a man who, this is like 2,000 years after Jesus. 2,000 years after Jesus walked on the earth, Jesus is walking on the earth. Jesus is revealing himself. He's changing lives. My confidence for seeing Edinburgh, I mean, seriously transformed in this generation, the reason we do church, the reason we launch new locations, the reason I have a confidence is Jesus said, I'll build my church. He's doing it. He's currently doing it. He's doing it through us. He's going to do it through us. The best days are ahead because Jesus is alive and he's building his church. And I believe he's God's. All of human history dates to his birthday. Have you thought about that? 2,000 years A.D., A.D., B.C., all points to Jesus. Everyone's calendars on planet Earth. Time magazine called him the man of the millennium. Today, a third of this world's population would claim to be Christian. In reality, one in ten people on planet Earth actively follow Jesus, just like the disciples. Read their Bible every day, connect actively with the local church. So what are the implications? Well, I think you know what the implications are. But just in case you try and escape, let me spell them out to you. This is the implications. William Barclay, the Bible translator and commentator, said this. Either what Jesus said about himself is false, in which case he is guilty of such blasphemy that no man dared ever utter, or what he said about himself is true, in which case what he claimed to be can be described in no other terms than the Son of God, God in the flesh. Jesus leaves us with a definite choice. We must either accept him fully or reject him absolutely. That is precisely why every person has to decide for or against Jesus Christ. He was either, C.S. Lewis was absolutely right, he was either mad, believing something about himself, but he was deluded. Evil, knowing what he was saying was a lie, but he went ahead and said it anyway to deceive people. Or exactly who he claimed to be. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. In verses 58 to 59 in John 8, it says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up their stones to stone him. So here's the deal. Either pick up your stones and stone him, or fall on your knees. But don't sit on the fence. Get off the fence. Stop being unradical in the face of a radical claim. Start making a choice. Get off your fence. Stop being in neutral when God is not giving you that option. Either pick up your stones and stone him, because you understood him rightly, or fall on your knees and give him your entire life and follow him all your days. G. Campbell Morgan, the missionary, said this, if Christ is only a man, then I am an idolater. If he is very God's, then the man who denies him is a blasphemer. 
And the great news, the implication about him being alive, him being God, not just a, a, a great example 2,000 years ago, but actually God, here's the great thing. You can know him. You can know him. You can actually, I don't just mean know him, I mean actually know him. I was so blessed. That, Lily, you're probably watching, you're in Leith today. And a few weeks ago in Leith, after preaching, Lily came up and brought me a prophecy. Before I tell you the prophecy, let me just encourage you, just tell me the context of it. The week before that, I'd preached, I think it was in Gorgie in the morning. And that afternoon, I was deeply, deeply discouraged about a number of things that were going on in my soul. I was deeply discouraged. And I, I, I went out and I took time just down by the river near where I, I, where I live. And I do what I always do when I'm feeling discouraged. I pray. And I just spent a bit of time in the afternoon just praying and actually crying out to God from the depth of my being, giving him all the concern and troubles in my soul. I felt like there was a significant weight on me. And I was praying and asking God to help with this. And I was crying out to God. Anyway, that was then. The week after, I was preaching in Leith. And after preaching, Lily came up to me and she said, I, I have a word from you for, from God. And she said, as you were preaching, I had this picture. And the picture was, I saw you down by a river near your house. And you were, you were carrying a heavy weight in your soul. You were desperate. You were crying out to God. I, it was, I could see it was autumn. There was leaves falling. And I could see you walking down beside the river. And you were crying out to God in utter desperation. And then the picture changed. And this time I saw you actually walking down by the river, the same place. And the leaves were falling. And there as I looked closer, you were happy. And actually, as I looked even closer, I saw someone was walking with you, and I realized it was none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus told me to tell you that you don't need to worry, that he's got it covered, that I will pour out my spirit. And he told me to keep doing what I'm doing. And he said, and you were talking and conversing like old friends. That blessed me on so many levels. I didn't need someone to prophesy to me to know that he's with me. I know he's with me. In fact, I know he's with you. I know he walks with you. If you know Jesus, you actually do know Jesus. I know sometimes you're talking, praying, and you're exasperated, and you're feeling it, and, you, and you're not hearing much. I understand that. That doesn't mean he doesn't know you. That doesn't mean you don't know him. He knows you. And when he leads you, it's so powerful. But I was blessed. I'm his old friend. I do know him. I love him. He speaks to me. He leads me. Every, everything we have seen that you could call success as a church, every single thing we've seen that's been a success, he originated it. His idea. I can't take any glory for that. It's all Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He leads us every step of the way, and he can lead your life every step of the way. Don't resist him. Either pick up your stones and stone him, or fall down and worship him, and let him be your God. No, nothing held back. Let him be your God. And let him lead you every day of your life into the great future he has for you. If he's God, then here's the next implication and the final implication. This is it. If he's God, then you can't ignore the fact that he died for you and rose again. You can't ignore that. If a human being had died for you, you couldn't ignore that. But if God died for you, pay attention. If God died for you, then sin is so serious. Don't make any excuses for sin. Repent for sin. Because that's how serious it is that God had to die on the cross in place of his, the creator in place of his creation. And if God died for you, you're so loved. 
You'd be, feel loved if a human died for you, but if God died for you, you are infinitely loved, eternally loved. Do not ignore the cross. He rose again. He is your Savior. And you've got to worship him. It says in John's gospel, at the very end of the gospel, this is the whole purpose of the gospel, John sums it all up and says in John 20 verse 31, all these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Life in his name. How? By you believing. By believing. So cross that line today. Either stone him or fall on your knees and worship him. Put your faith in him. Trust him to be the great savior of your life and live for him for the rest of your days and into eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for revealing yourself to the world. You said before Abraham was, I am. And we just say, Amen. We say, Glory to you, the great I am. Glory to you, the eternal one. Glory to you, to the God who is self existent. God, thank you. You're not dependent on anyone to exist. You are the source of all life. You are the one from whom all life emanates. You are the one who sustains everything with your powerful words. And with you, all things are possible. Glory to you, God, the one who is the creator the uncaused cause, before everything was, you were. Before everything came into being, you existed. Glory to you, God. Thank you that in you is life. And because life is in you, we can have life too by believing in you. And God, God, the creator, our marvelous, glorious creator, thank you for the love that you have for this world that caused you to die on the cross and rise again. We're blown away perpetually by this, God. We'll never get over it. We're blown away by you. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for your love that motivated you to go to the cross. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for willingly dying, shedding your blood for the crimes that you never committed, but we committed our sin on our Savior. And Jesus, thank you for rising again the third day. We look forward to, we are very excited about spending all eternity saying thank you to you and glorifying you and worshiping you with our lips and our lives and giving you everything. You deserve nothing but everything. And God, we want our lives. We want our church. We want all everything we're doing. Hampers, Christmas carol services, small groups, everything we're doing, our day jobs, everything we're doing. We want it to be to the glory of God who is great among us. Thank you, God. Thank you here by your spirit right now. Thank you. We're in your very presence. Thank you, Jesus. You love everyone here beyond what they could ever dare imagine. So in his presence just now, just take a moment to pray. Each one of you pray your own response to God. I understand that everyone is in a different situation. But for each one of you, pray your own response to God, whose name is Jesus. If you're here today and you just know that you're not yet connected with God, I have great news for you. You can be. Right now you can be. Jesus is here by his spirit. You can be transformed by believing in him. And if that's you today, 
then I give you this great invitation. Why don't you come to know Jesus today? Here's how we're going to do it. If you're here and you're saying, Peter, today I want to become a follower of Jesus. And you're willing to put your faith in him and you're willing to commit your life to him. Then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now. And I'm going to pray it one line at a time. I'll stop between each line and I'll give you an opportunity to repeat the prayer to God. And just don't need to pray out loud. Just pray under your breath. But let this be your prayer to God. Pray with me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me. Jesus, thank you for being willing to come into this world and for being willing to die on the cross in my place for my sin. And thank you, you rose again from the dead on the third day. And you're alive right now. I'm so grateful to you. And I put my faith in you, Jesus. I trust you. And I choose to follow you from now on. I commit my life to you. Be Lord, be God over my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer. If you prayed that prayer, just wherever you're sitting, I'd like to pray for you. If you prayed that prayer and that's the decision you made today, I would love the privilege of praying for you and asking God to bless you as you embark on this journey. In order to know who I'm praying for, could you just identify yourself to me just by raising your hand? If that's you today, whether you're in the balcony, cafe, or main floor, just raise your hand and say, that's me today. Today, I choose to put my trust in Jesus. Raise your hand nice and high so I can see it. Thank you. Is there anyone else? It's great. Anyone else today? It's the decision you're making. Before I pray, is there anyone else? Lord, I, I've seen at least one hand. There might have been others, but either way, God, I, I pray for everyone, and, and in particular, this dear lady who's raised her hand today. Today, she has put her trust in Jesus to be her Savior. And I thank you that you've just heard her prayer. Thank you that that's the beginning of a whole miracle that takes place in her life now. God, let her know from this moment your love your compassion and let us be the beginning of a great new life for her in Jesus name thank you God Amen